Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. Welcome to episode 0000128 of The Mission. My name is Chex Paper, Daniel James. I'll be your host through to eight this evening, broadcasting to you from the world-famous Radio City Docklands, which is on the world-famous Wurundjeri land of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past and present and I remind us all that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Uh, coming up tonight on the show, we'll be joined by Chelsea Waitgo. She's just released her first book, a collection of essays in which she explores issues of race and identity, what it means to be Indigenous and to live in a society. The structures were built and constructed with the assumption that first peoples of this land were going to die out in due course. She is a deep thinker and a fierce advocate, and I say fierce with a capital F, so stick around. It should be a great conversation. Now, now that the country is opening up again and the pandemic for the time being seems to be something we're living with, it's time to get some traction again on some issues that need traction, all the traction they can get. So issues like, for instance, raise the age. Locking up children in 2021 or at any time period in history actually has surely got to stop. The locking up of Aboriginal women without charge and maximum security prisons in this state known as Victoria, the so-called progressive state, has got to stop. Having adequate housing and accommodation for Aboriginal women fleeing domestic violence has got to remain a priority that needs to be addressed. The norm of Aboriginal people living with comorbidities like health disease and um, diabetes needs to be a norm that needs to be gotten rid of and needs to be an exception at best. There are so many issues that need addressing. Perhaps the most prominent of all, the most pressing, is the travesty that is Aboriginal death and custody. Just on the weekend, a 26-year-old Aboriginal man died, died while in custody. His death, his death means that there have been 471 First Nations people that have died in custody since the Royal Commission handed down its findings in 1991, according to the Australian Institute of Criminology which reported that in May. It's probably at least 471. There will be deaths that we actually don't know about, and that's um, uh, just uh, such a sad thought within itself. And the thing is, you probably won't see anything about it reported in the mainstream media, and that in itself also is part of the problem. And that has got to change too. Remember the Black Lives Matters marches last year, or was it earlier this year? I can't recall. Um, remember the brief interest by the mainstream media in Aboriginal deaths in custody. Those news reports, the meaningful looks and the chants on the streets um, are all just a distant echo now. And what has changed? Nothing. Less than nothing. Uh, we need to keep in mind that these issues we need to keep talking about. With nuance, we need political will and we need policy smarts to address some of these issues because they're not going away by themselves. Talk is cheap. So we need to keep educating ourselves and I guess willing ourselves to, to, to do something about these issues because we're losing generations of Aboriginal people as a result of these issues not being addressed. So join with me on the mission as we continue to talk about these issues week in, week out. 
As always, the best way to get in contact with me is via my Twitter handle. This is the mission. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You're on the mission, Triple R 102.7 FM, or maybe you're listening via the National Indigenous Radio Service, or maybe you're listening via Koori Radio in Sydney. You are all welcome. Uh, thank you for listening, and we appreciate your support. Uh, to our first guest tonight, she has a book out in which she writes, My interest in race is not a matter of intellectual curiosity. I have no desire to possess the most sophisticated articulation of it. I'm a black fellow with some things to say about it, for race has always had a place in my life, especially in my resistance against it. Some would say it's in our resistance that the most violence is perpetrated, maybe. The writer of those words is Dr. Chelsea Waco. She is a Mananjali and a South Sea Islander woman and raised on Yagira country. First trained as an Aboriginal health worker, she's an Indigenous health humanities scholar, prolific writer and public intellectual. She's a mother of five beautiful kids and a fierce advocate for her people and against what is wrong with the colony. Her collection of essays in the recently released book, Another Day in the Colony, is being called a groundbreaking work and a call to arms that exposes the ongoing colonial violence experienced by First Nations people. And I've read the book and that's true. And I'm very pleased to say that uh, Chelsea joins us online now. Chelsea, welcome to the mission. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. It's an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Um, we've been in and around each other um, on social media for a number of years now, and I've uh, watched your, um, your your work and, and your growth um, and your continued growth uh, for a number of years now, and it's just um, fantastic to um, absolutely have you on the show tonight talking about this. Well, thanks, Chips. It's been a journey. <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I gather that. Um, I was um, in a bookshop yesterday here in here in um, Nam, and I can report that there was a significant dent in the pile I saw of your book on the shelves in the um, oh. in, in, in in the bookshop. So um, that's my market wow. research. So <laughs> I could tell you that it's selling here in Melbourne. So um, uh, congratulations, oh. and of course, you must be thrilled with the um, with the reviews and rapturous. Um, yeah, rapturous reviews that it's received since it, since it came out. Yeah, it's like the fun's just starting in terms of, like, people actually reading the book. Um, I felt a bit guilty because it, it got out on pre-order, like, months ago, and a lot of mobs um, pre-ordered it, you know, and um, um, <laughs> but were hyping it up and all excited about it coming in the mail um, or <laughs> complaining that it hadn't yet arrived in their mailbox. Um, and um, I was kind of like, well, yeah, don't hype it up. Yeah, you've got to read it first and read it right. <laughs> it might, um, it might be absolutely crap. No, you don't know. And I'm just like, we were talking, I'm going to see it first. You might like it. Um, so it's um, – because it's a slow process writing a book, you know. It was written a year ago and edits and, and things. So I'm used to the, you know, the quick response. Something happens, you put something out in 24 hours and, and you engage immediately, you know. And um, so it's, yeah. I've been a little bit um, – so this has been a funny process, and um, but the love from Blackfellas around this book. I mean, we went to reprint on public publication day, and it was because it's not in the suburban bookstores across the country. It's um, it's it's a word of mouth. Blackfellas Twitter, in particular, yes. and um, and Blackfellas just um, buying buying this book online, and um, that's just been so exciting to see 
the excitement that Blackfellas have for this book. Um, yep. And people are starting to read it now and share their experience of it. Um, and it's just, it's really overwhelming. I'm just, um, I'm glad that it's doing something for the people that I wrote it for. That's right. You make a point in in the book that it's not a uh, a book for for mainstream Australia. You wrote it with Blackfellas well and truly at the centre of it. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I I'm, I just um, as an academic, so much of my intellectual labour is, is is just forced into a servitude role to the settlers and you know explaining who we are and um, educating them. And um, I, you know, I'd get home from work and realise that the best of me. Um, uh, was given to others and, you know, my community work happened outside of work time and um, I'd be tired and, and I I want my intellectual work to be of service to my mob. That's what brought me there in the first place. Um, mm. And so um, it was nice just, um, you know, knowing who my audience was and who I was writing to and, uh, you know, I learned that the, the power of that doing Wild Black Woman radio show where we just made a decision that, while black women were our audience, and any decision we made was like, well, what will black women think? And um, and so and I and I saw the the beauty of that and how people responded to, to that of going, finally, we got this is just for us. Other people can listen and learn and take stuff, but you know, there's some things that get to be for us because we deserve it. And um, so yeah, I, I like that, and people are feeling that in in the text in terms of their some of their responses to it. Yeah, we we need our own little intellectual and spiritual place, a little corner in the world where we can uh, freely discuss these things. And 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 the book is full of um, you know no holds barred analysis mm-hmm. about uh, the colony. Um, about it did have to um, be legal. Huh? <laughs> well, I was <laughs> I was <laughs> I was reading it and I was thinking, gee, this has been this 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 has had the you know the the, the legal. <laughs> Absolute fine print, um, forensic. Various lawyers for various reasons had to read this, and other people and institutions and other authors. So, well, the the good thing about it is that they didn't kill it. You know, they didn't kill the the spirit or intent of what you're actually saying in some of these chapters about. Um, you know, certain um, authors and, uh, and white authors yeah. and and the like. And, and that still remains there. It's a very, very powerful analysis of um, the way, um, in some of the chapters, the way white people have told Aboriginal stories um, throughout yeah. time. Yeah, I, was, I mean, I was, I was so excited. There's a, um, chapter three um, is the unpublishable story and it was the one that the Australian Feminist Law Journal would not publish even though it was part of a special issue that they commissioned and I was invited to participate in um, and, you know, wouldn't publish because there was an implication that the author may be racist, um, even with the 180 footnotes that I had gathered around their text, um, and that, that that would be defamatory. And it, I was so excited when um, UQP said, no, this this is publishable, Um uh, and I, I love the fact that, that that piece of work could get out there because that was a lot of work that went into that that piece. Mm. Um, but it's a critique that should have should be in the public domain, um, particularly when the way in which she wrote about blackfellas um, in Townsville and Palm and stuff. And and so we should have the writer apply to the texts that have been written about us. And um, and yeah, and so it was just it was I was surprised, but really. Um, proud of the fact that that story got told despite what the Feminist Law Journal claimed during that yeah. two-year process of fighting over that article. 
Absolutely. I mean, I mean, obviously, full credit to you for writing it in the first place, but full credit to the uh, University of Queensland Press for having the courage to um, mm. to, to print it. Um, because I'm, I'm guessing that that the the, the legal process around um, getting the book published probably wasn't too cheap for them. So. Um, good on them. They're putting their, their money where their where their mouth is, and you and what, are, of course, what, as you always do. Yeah, and what's particularly good about it is UQP published that book I was critiquing, and they also published the book that helped me critique it, which was, of course, Russia Brent's Finding Eliza. And so, just the yes. way that this worked, that all these these three texts are all published by the same publisher, um, and the way in which they're speaking to each other. Um, yeah, that was um, yeah, it was funny how that all worked out. It's funny how free speech sometimes pays off. It actually works sometimes. Or um, academic freedom, even. I was, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was like. <laughs> now, full, con- uh, full, yeah. Con- full confession, I usually skip over introductions in books, um, but I found your introduction to be one of the most interesting I've read in a long time. Um, you don't claim universal- universality when um, you- in what you write in this book. You make it clear that these are your stories. Um, you also um, make it clear that, it happened in a time and place where you actually had to take a break when you were perhaps yeah. at your um, most intellectual rigorous. Um, what was that moment and, and what made you write the book? Yeah, well, uh, look, I did have a book deal and I was meant to write this book and it kind of just kept getting put off because of the busyness of work and life. I was, you know, doing weekly radio show with um, Angelina for Wild Black Woman. Uh, board member of an NGO, daytime member of an academic, five kids. Um, but on top of that, I also had a, on on the cyber two um, legal cases, one against the Queensland Police Service, and one against my employer at the time, the University of Queensland. And um, and it was COVID year. It was 2020, and I just um, renovated my house where we went without a laundry and kitchen for five months with five kids. Um, and we got through it all. And on the other side of it, suddenly my body stopped and I was, I wasn't, I, I was really wild that my body had betrayed me. I didn't know what was going on why I couldn't just get up and function how I normally would. And, yep. um, it was really funny because, um, I went to the doctor and they said, look, you're stressed. You need to take time out. Like, what are you doing is too much. And um, that night I had to go on the drum, though, when I think it was, I was trying to say that slavery didn't happen in this country. So I, remember, I, I remember that. I remember that, that. that episode? <laughs> well, that was the day. Yes. I was told I need to go on extended sick leave, but I turned up for TV first and then went on leave. And um, and it was just a week later I got the two letters about the race discrimination cases um, that they were progressing. And I just felt like it was a week, the timing of things was never coincidence. I felt like I was being told to take time out because these things were coming. And, There's something um, in it, isn't there? Yeah, like the, all the timing of different things, how things have worked, it's just, it's it's too ridiculous. Like, okay, I see what's going on, I just go with it. Um, and um, so I felt like I was taken out for a reason because I wasn't listening, I wasn't stopping. And so I was just taken out of all the things I was doing to just take a minute and to make sense of what was going on. And so the book really is about, I guess, was at a time where I was, um, yeah, really, um annoyed that I couldn't perform like I usually do Um, and so I got to think a bit more and um, a lot of the essays are bits of keynotes or pieces of writing and you know that the thinking had been done sort of but I hadn't actually sat down to write and construct a book and chapters and and take the time with it and work out what that story was doing or how this was working and so I I was I I was only for like three months and um, um, ended up yeah, writing the book during that time for the most of it during that time. There was, of course, the whole process that goes on after that. 
Um, and I, I learned the importance of writing from place, um, not just geographically, but um, that, those places emotionally and to, to think from that place. And it gave me insight into things, um, I think, that I wouldn't have taken paid attention to had I been caught up in the busyness of all the other things that I was doing in my life. And so I remain very grateful for that time in my life because I, I, it gave me an insight into things and an insight to myself and my family life that, um, yeah, just let me take stock of things and um, and just to stop for a minute, even though I wrote a book during the time. Um, <laughs> but I, for me, writing is is it's how it makes sense of the craziness of things. I need to, yeah. So that's it's a process for me, and I I get joy from thinking and writing. That's why I like being academic. I I really enjoy doing that work um and so it was um it felt a little bit like an indulgence almost to be doing that in that time of real yeah i I, I think that's part of part of the reason chelsea why why there's so many great um indigenous writers around at the moment you know um I, i think the process of actually sitting down and trying to work out what the hell is going on in the world mm. from a personal, political, social, spiritual level um, is, is one of the things that seems to be driving a, um, a, a great sort of, uh, uh, I won't say re-emergence, but a, a great surge in, in Indigenous authors about the place. Um, before you went on break, I like the fact that you did a massive mic drop on the drum before you had your, um, <laughs> before you had your break and then you decided to write a book. Um well, the and that was fun because I just like the way Mob reacted to that drum episode. That was hilarious, and it was so fun watching it afterwards. And and I guess that <laughs> that gate was a good start to thinking about the book and going, this is your audience. This is who you're writing for. Yeah, exactly. I would imagine yeah. that it would give you uh, a degree of, I mean, um, not that you lack confidence, but it would give you, I guess, some clarity around, okay, who is my audience and who is this book yeah. for? And um, that was a great affirmation just before you got to the task of actually writing it. <laughs> Bless, yeah. <laughs> um, in the book, you talk about um, there's a section there uh, entitled "The Price We Pay," right? So, um, the price mm-hmm. paid by black fellows in our varying strategizing. You write this around race and all the issues associated with um, is something that I don't think enough thought is given given to your work, and this book is actually dedicated to making it easier for the next generation of uh, Aboriginal people, easier than it has been for, for my generation and all those generations mm-hmm. before us. At the end of the day, um, that's what's at the centre of all your work, is it not? Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't have any sense that we're ever going to escape the violence that we're subjected to. Um, and in knowing that, knowing the truth of that and accepting the truth of that, you know, the settlers are never going home. We're always going to be bound up in this abusive relationship um, that, if, if we work from that basis, maybe we'll strategize differently in a way that protects us better. And, and what I mean is I think there, um, uh, I think so, so there's some of us that believe the lies of colonial institutions and the promise that they make. And, um, and, and it's why I make a call for retiring hope um, is mm. to um, hope has been so violent in the way it's betrayed us as blackfellas in this place. Um, and when I say about retiring hope, I'm not saying that all is hopeless. I'm yes. just saying hope is not the strategy for emancipation. Um, what it is, and, and, and the gift that um, the likes of Aunty Dr. Lula Watson gave me and Uncle Shane Cogle and a whole lot of blackfellas every day that I just get to watch do amazing things in the midst of um, the most brutal moments is the reminder 
to be sovereign, to remember who we are and where we come from and work from that basis, not as an appeal, not as a waiting for someone to validate and verify or to issue that verdict that somehow gives us back something. It's to stand in our power and our strength and work from that basis. And yeah. sometimes that means just not giving an F about what anyone else thinks and just doing it anyway. Um, I think one of the, one of the things that, that worries me, um, Chelsea, is when I when I see, you know, brothers and sisters um, form positions where they seem to think that uh, the, the, the colonialism is going is going to go away at some point mm. and that we are actually going to, you know, get our land back um, en masse. I, I, I get mm. tremendously worried about um, uh, some of my friends and family that adopt that mindset because mm. if you if you hold on to that hope, it's actually going to make you um, consistently frustrated and, and probably pretty miserable for, for throughout your life. Yeah, it's a form of torture, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I just think as Blackfellas, we are so generous and trusting. Um, and, and, and I think we offer a generosity to the settlers that they have not earned and not proven themselves worthy of. Um, and, you know, I just even see when, you know, mob get to work in, a, you know, a, for an Indigenous service or an identified position because they want to help their mob, uh, it, it can't be done in those places. Um, yeah. I've seen too much of the violence that happens to blackfellas entering colonial institutions with the hope of affecting change being betrayed by that, by the institution. And uh, the number of blackfellas who've sat at my house crying, going, I realise they don't actually care. Um, you know, I hate seeing that brokenness of blackfellas mm. who come to this place to make a difference, to only to be broken by it. And so that's where this strategy comes from. It's not to say, oh, you know, it's all useless. It's like, no, hope, it's, it's hope that has betrayed us. And and if we know, um, if we understand how settler colonialism works, um, that it is, it, it, it means that we're always going to be in a relationship with our abuser. There's no way out of it. So how do we strategize better to to, um, to to not just survive but live here um, in, on our terms, in spite of their violence? And that's that's hard to do. It is. It is. Yeah. And you know, let's let's talk about what we've just just been talking about, Chelsea. <laughs> it's, it's what we're talking about is the, the essay um, "Fuck Hope." Um, one of my favourites. I get to say it. I wasn't sure if I could no, say it. No, you're right. You're right. You're, this is a this is a progressive uh, Melbourne radio station. <laughs> um, oh, well, fuck it then. <laughs> fuck it. Exactly. Um, look, it's one of my favourite chapters, and in it you write, mm-hmm. "We occupy a social world that refuses to see our humanity, and not because it has yet to discover it, but precisely because its very existence is founded upon our violent erasure. It has no other way of knowing itself." Now. I think that's a very, very profound point. Let's talk about that a little. What, what do you mean by? Well, look, I mean, I think I know what you mean, but what do you mean? Yeah. In the last three days, two blackfellas have died at the hands of the cops. Yeah. Um, just last month, that fella got off. You know, shot dead at yep. blackfellas on the street. Um, like they're not even hiding this. They're not even hiding it. I mean, we can talk about the way in which it. Um, happens in the in more covert ways, like you think about closing the gap and ten years of policy failure, and they still refresh it, knowing yeah. it's not working. When they do royal commissions and never implement the recommendations, and then they do a review on the recommendations with the 
recommendation for another review. They know what they're doing here. This idea that blackfellas are destined to die is one that they've yet to relinquish. You read it in the current inquiries of blackfellas who've died in her health system or in, in custody, where no matter all of the system failures or the, 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 the um, you know, failing in duty of care by individuals who are charged with our care, no matter all of the failings, the coroners come up with recommendations or no recommendations or very few recommendations because they, they will come up with the idea, the conclusion that despite all their best efforts, nothing could be done. That black death, premature death, is inevitable because of our lack, our inferiority. Um, so we can see it in the most extreme ways from black boys getting literally shot down in the street. Mm. to the way in which every day blackfellas have to encounter the violence of all these kind of institutions, whether it's an emergency room, whether it's in a lecture theatre, whether it's in the classroom, um, in the tea room at work when you're the only blackfella there. Um, we have to um, face this stuff all the time. And um, uh, this, um, you know, it is a strange feeling to even even like even growing up where um, when white fellas police your identity and, and always believe that the black fellas exist somewhere else, the real ones exist always somewhere else. And yeah. I remember the yeah. Recon- Reconciliation Australia years ago in the 90s did a survey and they found that almost all Australians um, believed that the real Aborigines, no matter where they did the survey, they were always somewhere else. Yes. Like their existence <laughs> is based on us not existing here. Yeah. Um, I mean, so you're right. You're right in the book. our identity, or actually, literally shooting us down on the street. They have this. They still have yet to relinquish the idea of terra nullius. That, that, and and blackfellas are resisting. I mean, that's why on city streets, um, every year we're chanting, "Still here, always yeah. was, always will be." We're we're just declaring our existence. That's our protest here in this place. That we exist. So, that's what do you? I mean, you're you're a mother of five uh, very cute children because I've seen them on the <laughs> socials. Um, what are you telling them? What are you telling them about when they're getting to an age where they've got their independence and they're on the streets and they're pulled over by a cop or they're in a, uh, well, they a shopping have mall? A few times. <laughs> yeah. What do you tell yeah. them? What do you tell them? Fuck the police. Um, <laughs> no, uh, so we've had, you know, um, my second child had, um, well, actually, my eldest, I still remember he was 11, and I had to pick him up from school one day because um, uh, there was a kid who called him the N-word, and um, the school, the kids reported it, and, um, and I picked him up and just sort of was like, oh, so, you know, how are you feeling about it all? And he said, look, maybe when I was younger it would have affected me, but now I'm older I can kind of handle it. So I'm not sure about what we tell our kids. It's about what they have to just deal with and then and how we get them to understand it. Um, with my um, second eldest, um, they did do a whole lot of racism and homophobia, not just from classmates but from the curriculum and teachers. Um, and they choose to walk out of assembly, or they choose to not stand for the anthem in assembly each week, but they are escorted out each week because they won't let, let them sit during the anthem, so they have to be remo- physically removed. Um, and, um, you know, they've been frustrated by lots of encounters, and um, I've got them to think about the playground as literally a training ground, for them to play and think about how they mess with this place. 
right. to practice their response. There are some days, I remember there was one week, it was early on in the year, and a teacher bullied them for having rainbow shoelaces, even though that was never part of a school uniform policy, um, where they were um, questioned about their stance on the answer because old mate changed that one word. Um, and, and there was just one thing after another in the course of the week. And the first day I was like, so what do you think is going on there? Let's deconstruct it. What are you, what, and what are your strategies? What are your options? Having strategy means having strategies so that you've got plan A, B, C, and D. Um, and um, the first few days, and it happened like day after day, the first few days, and there was one time and I looked at their face and there were tears. And I went, you know what, fuck this. Don't, you don't have to do a thing. I'm going up there. And so me and father went up there and, yeah. and met them because there are some things that kids should not have to deal with. Um, you know, it's one thing they have to learn how to cope in this world, but there are some things where we just have to step in and, and, and remind them um, whose land they're on and whose kids are in their care and they're ours, you know. And um, yeah. so I get, I get a bit wild sometimes because our kids have to face a whole lot of stuff before um, other kids have to in this world. Um, and, yes, it does make them stronger, but there's sometimes where, you know what, not today, you know. Yeah, exactly. That sort of thing at some point has, has got to affect a child's ability to, to thrive. And so that's when um, Mama Bear steps in. <laughs> but also this, this kid knows um, how a limited um, education system is, yeah. how ridiculous some of the assignments are. And so they did a pitch this year, just actually last month, for school captain for a school that they have little respect for. Um, and they, they introduced themselves culturally and declared themselves as um, – um, gender fluid and pansexual in front of the whole school, and then proceeded to drag proceeded to drag everyone for all of the stuff they had to endure. Um, and but there was a line where they said, "I know who I am and I know what I stand for." And I thought, okay, um, okay, maybe we've done something right here that um, that this yep. kid is grounded in who they are. And in after the drag, um, they cheekily just said vote for me. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I'm like, you know, that, that our kids, um, and, and that's why I say fuck hope is sovereign, is that if, our, if if we know who we are and where we come from, we stand from that in that place, then it doesn't matter what they do to us. And I remember I used to use the word resistance. Manny Lilla Watson um, called me on. She said, we're not resisting. We're not the ones fighting. We're just standing still. They mm. keep battering us. And so it really made me think about living and, and, and being and and being grounded every day in the colony because um, they can't move us then. So it's a, it's a, it's a really um, grounding point, isn't it? It's something that, mm-hmm. um, you know, if we just stand our ground, then, you know, sometimes that's just the best we can do, you know. Um, well, cause what, what people don't realise is that when we – when we weather the violence and try and understand it in terms of not saying anything, when we turn the other cheek or we think we can outperform it and work 10 times harder and not stand our ground, there is a greater violence that gets visited upon us when we um, consent to that violence that they visit upon us. And, and I've, and I've you know, talked about in, our, um, in the story about um, what happened is there's a greater price to be paid for being silent about the violence that we experience. 
Yeah, that's right. You, you, you're right. Some would say it's our, in our resistance that the most violence is actually perpetrated. You know, and again, mm. um, another salient point. Look, um, before I let you go, um, I'm speaking with Chelsea uh, Waco um, about her new book, Another Day in the Colony, which is um, thoroughly recommended by yours truly. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I'll let you go shortly because I know you've got a massive party to organise. Um, <laughs> it's a massive party. <laughs> um Tell us about the storytelling wars before before I let you um, make some calls. What do you want to know about the storytelling wars? Well, what is it? Tell us. What's what's we we know we you've covered it um, a number of times in terms of white authors telling black stories. Mm. What what to the listeners out there is the storytelling wars? Yeah, it's um, and I guess there's a few examples of any time we go to speak, um, the way in which we are silenced, even just yes. to tell the truth or to speak back about in defence of our own child, uh, we get threatened with defamation. Yes. Um, uh, we critique a book and, yeah, it can't be published. Um, um, th- there's a whole um, genre of texts um, that are about us. Um, that sort of historical memoir text, yeah. Yeah, and um, but and I think that's why Finding Eliza, Lisa Brent's book was so useful in in in, in shining a light on that. Of that, they this is always the stories they've told, yep. um, and it doesn't. It's not just the you know the white teacher that goes to the remote community for two years and then tells does a tell all tale um, that they concoct. Um, we're also talking about the anthropologists um, who mm-hmm. who get Absolutely. to be the experts on our culture to decide whether we get our land back. I mean, white fictions have a function in this place in the most violent, ridiculous, dispossessing ways. And so, of course, they have to silence our stories. You know, of course we can't speak because if we speak, then um, we might know something. And that's dispossession that we can't know ourselves, that only they can know who we are, that they're the best best ones to determine um, the legitimacy of our existence, that they always get to define and construct us. And it doesn't matter if it's fiction or non-fiction, these white fantasies visit a violence upon black fellows, and that's why I'm so insistent about what a black story is, a black story that's written by black fellows for black fellows that doesn't have at it, at its, as part of its uh, goal to appeal to, to the settler consciousness. Like, fuck that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, 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 I saw Corey Rep, and he says, um, my song's getting played without a radio station. That's literally black stories. Our stories are getting told. Um, but not by the publishing industry. They're getting told at kitchen tables and all kinds of places. And and what I want to do is go. No, we're going to we're going to take our place. We're going to tell our stories. And the thing is, blackfellas will buy these books. We we sold out on on publication day, and it was blackfellas that that moved this book. Um, well, they're, because they're, we want to read about ourselves from ourselves. They're they're buying it because it's excellent. I mean, the point. <laughs> um, I mean, I could talk to you forever, but. The point you made about anthropologists is something that Yorta Yorta mob know all too well when we had our native title claim, and it was on the back of uh, you know the 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 research and and the the storytelling by anthropologists that actually denied us um, yep. that. But that's another point. Look, I'll let you go. You've got a massive party to to organise. We've got two hundred um, black fellas on a rooftop tomorrow night in the engine, um, not to celebrate a book, but to embody black joy, unmitigated blackness, um, and and um, looking forward to sharing with the mob who can't be here because, um, you know, it would have been a, a bigger party than that. Um, mm. But um, 
I, I really wanted to um, to us actually to embody the very ideas in the book because um, it's yeah. not about selling the book. It's about actually how we turn up. We were we were speaking briefly off air about you know you were, you were saying well, I don't know why I'm doing this. The question is not why <laughs> you're doing it. The question is why not. I'm just tired. <laughs> it's a big. It turns out really it's a really big project to organise this kind of party, and um, oh, of course imagine. within 24 hours. I've got lots of cousins who missed out on tickets who are hitting me up and we're at capacity, so I'm in a whole lot of trouble. Um, <laughs> they all come out of the woodwork in the end, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, all right, Chelsea. Um, 98.9 and Beam are going to cover it, and so hopefully we can share um, with the rest of the mob the stories from tomorrow night um, oh, please um, do. to a broad audience, yeah. Magnificent. Cool. Um, another Day in the Colony is out now and available in all good bookshops through the University of Queensland Publishing. Chelsea, thank you so much for your time. It's an actual real pleasure to actually speak to you finally. No, you too. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed the chat. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>